a few years ago, when I was 12 or 13 years old, <laughs> I remember walking up the street to the little church where my family worshipped and was a part of with my dad walking with me. My dad was going to be leading the session of the day for our church youth group. And I was so proud that he was the featured speaker of the day. And as we were talking, I remember as we were walking and talking, asking him, Dad, do you think Jesus will come back in my lifetime? Back then, I had a very particular, concrete understanding of Jesus coming back. And my dad said, well, I don't know, Matt. Maybe it's you. That's a lot to put on a 13-year-old kid. There was a moment of, wow, and oh my goodness. But I also knew instantly that he didn't mean I was actually going to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. He meant that everyone is called to manifest God's Spirit in their life and in their way and in their time. So that was one voice that I had in my life, that voice of affirmation and encouragement from my father. I had another voice in my life from my brother, which wasn't so positive or nurturing. In the tradition of older brothers, uh, my brother, some older brothers, I suppose, my brother engaged in what might be called today emotional abuse. I received from my brother a steady stream of put-downs and insults and criticisms tearing me down constantly. And that made an impact on me. It, it, I struggled with self-esteem. I struggled with self-confidence. Even today, I can be very self-deprecating. I can have a self-deprecating sense of humor still, even as I'm working my way through this, which I think is a kind of, you know, defense strategy. Like, before anybody else can say anything negative about me, I'm just going to get it out there to beat you to the punch. Ha-ha. <laughs> well, come high school, I'm, this is my high school picture, by the way. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> what a sweet boy. My high school aspirations as I graduated high school were not anything lofty like being the second coming of Jesus Christ. I had much more reserved career aspirations as was lifted in the year, <laughs> in the yearbook. I wanted to be an advertiser. You know, by comparison, that was really playing it safe, uh, a much more easygoing career or, or so I thought. Last night, we watched the biopic of Elvis. Have you seen this new film? It's really well done. It features Tom Hanks and Austin Butler, who plays Elvis and does a magnificent job. Austin Butler is more Elvis than Elvis. It's just an amazing film. And yet another reminder, another case study of how a young person with incredible talent, what happens when they are thrust into the spotlight get immediate fame and fortune, are coming into their own as a person, as a human being, and also receiving incredible criticism and hostility and shame. 
particularly for Elvis in the way that he danced and the way that he dressed. Now, fortunately, not everybody who has that collision in their life of being young and talented and getting immediate fame and fortune uh, ends as poorly as Elvis did. Elvis turned into a very unwell person. But there are at least a few examples of people who navigate all of that fairly successfully. I can think of two, Trevor Noah and Taylor Swift, both of whom, as young people, are still young people, at least to me, have navigated fame and fortune and also hardship and criticism and despair and uh, attacks and shaming. If you're familiar with Trevor Noah's biography, Born a Crime, he talks about being a biracial person in South Africa and how that was not easy at all and that his mother prepared him that this world is going to try to kill you. And he could have taken that as an, as an invitation to step back and recede and to hide, but Trevor Noah used humor as a way to overcome his fear and to step into his gifts and become Trevor Noah. And Taylor Swift also experienced rapid fame and fortune and also intense criticism and shaming as she was coming into her own in her music career. And so many of her songs are about overcoming that kind of negativity and hostility and hate. While the haters hate, 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 I'm going to shake, 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 shake it off. I mean, that's just one example from, from her music. It's all about, so often her music is about triumphing over adversity. Well, speaking of being torn down, many of you know that our rainbow banner that hangs on the exterior wall right over here outside was torn down this week by an unknown vandal right around 5 o'clock on Tuesday evening. Somebody was driving by the church, saw the sign, pulled over. All we know about him is that he was a white male, late 20s, got out of his pickup truck, ran over the sign, hung on it, and tore it down, left it there, got in his pickup, and off he went. And as I've talked to various people about this incident, there's a collective, two things. There's a collective sense of, oh, again, we have to go through this again. And also a sense of, let's put up five more. <laughs> and let's add rainbow searchlights outside the church. An immediate sense of rising up, overcoming this little moment of painful adversity. Well, Jesus, let's not forget, was a young adult. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't resist this picture. <laughs> it really has nothing to do with the message, other than to remind us that Jesus was a young person and came into his career as a young person experiencing rapid fame, maybe not so much fortune. Somebody who was enormously talented and gifted and was not only recognized for that talent, but also experienced a lot of criticism and hostility and shaming, not only in his ministry career, but I imagine long before beginning 
at his birth. See, this is a part of the Christmas story that we often just skip right over and gloss right over and get to that glorious moment of the baptism and everything's great, forgetting that Jesus was an illegitimate child. Jesus was a child born out of wedlock. Now today, thank goodness that stigma is lessening quite a bit, but back in that time, that meant that Jesus was born a crime and very likely was reminded constantly, maybe every day in some way, that he was a mistake, that he was a child who was not supposed to happen, that he was illegitimate. Jesus was shamed routinely. And I imagine that this moment of baptism in his life was a confirmation against all those voices that he received throughout his life that he was, in fact, a beloved child, not a bastard child, not born a crime, not a born mistake. It was Jesus' moment of being born again. Now, I use that word a little cautiously. That's not a word we, a phrase we use in this church at all, really, because it's been so weaponized but I say it was born again for Jesus because it was his moment of claiming his authenticity and his spiritual identity, truly who he is, over and above all those other voices that had to have been coming at him throughout his young life. For Jesus, it was about trusting the Creator over all the haters, those attempting to tear him down, and taking the risk of stepping into his talent, into his gifts. And I suspect when he heard that voice saying, you are my beloved, it was a moment of ah, and oh my goodness, wonderful, and oh crap, now what? How do I live into this? How do I live into this beloved identity every day? How many of you remember were in Atlanta when Atlanta was selected to host the 1996 Olympics? Anybody? Was anybody here at that time? All right, a, a pretty good chunk of us. And if you remember, I was here as well, and if you remember, there were two reactions that came when Atlanta was selected to host the Olympics. It was, hooray, this is amazing. The world is coming to Atlanta. The spotlight is going to be on us. We are worthy of the Olympics. And the other action was, oh crap, the world is coming to Atlanta. <laughs> and all we have to show them is the world of Coca-Cola and the underground. And well, we had a little more than that. But you know, there was a sense of we're not ready. We had to prepare. We have to live into this identity of being worthy to host this marvelous international event. Teenage boys, young teens, like 12, 13 age, teenage boys, in my experience, there's something similar going on here. Now, there might be a difference between straight boys and queer boys on this. I'm going with the straight boy experience because that's my experience. But 12, 13, 14-year-old boys, it does not occur to them often to address issues of personal hygiene, taking a shower, smelling good, doing something with your hair, until they become interested in somebody else romantically. Longing to be someone's beloved 
and to look at someone else as their beloved, then it's like, oh, I better, I better clean up my act and, and get presentable. Now, it's one thing to have a daily baptism known as a shower. It takes a little longer for all of us to see ourselves as worthy of love. Baptism is both hearing that we are worthy and beloved above all the other voices that tear us down and finding ways to live into that every day. About 18 years ago, I had the pleasure and the honor of being at a breakfast of about 100 people at which Gene Robinson was the featured keynote speaker. If you don't know about Gene Robinson, you need to know about Gene Robinson. He is the first out gay priest in the Anglican Communion who was then canonized as the first out gay bishop anywhere. And you always have to say out gay priest or minister because we know gay people have been ordained for a long, long time, but just not always free and able to be out as Gene Robinson was. And when he was canonized, on this day, you can't see it, but underneath those robes, he is wearing a bulletproof vest. And several of the clergy people, people who look like clergy, are actually security guards wearing weapons, also wearing bulletproof vests, there to protect him because of the amount of hate and vitriol and shaming and violent threats that were coming against Gene Robinson for the crime of being affirmed for his baptism and his ministry gifts to become a bishop. Two years later, I was at this breakfast with him, and I don't remember much about what he said, honestly, in his keynote address, but afterwards he took questions. And one person asked this question, he said, Gene, after all you've been through, when you pray to God, what do you ask for? What do you say to God? And Gene Robinson said, when I pray, I don't say anything. I just sit and let God love me. I experience myself as God's beloved. Church, you too have gifts and talents. You have a superpower of some kind, but that is not what makes you beloved. You are beloved of God simply because you are the beloved of God. But until we claim that identity as God's beloved, we might not be leading and shining and letting our gifts out into the world as fully as we could. We all have raw talent. Now, your talent might not get you fame and fortune. I'm sorry to break that to you. That may not be your path or your journey. And we all have voices and people who are trying to tear us down in the process. And hearing of our belovedness and belongingness, I believe, is what we all long to hear. And it's exactly what we hope you will hear right here at Virginia Highland Church. To know of your blessedness and your belovedness and your belongingness, that's what gets Pastor Candace and I up every morning and to this church, the hope and the promise that that experience and that voice would come to you. But that's only the beginning. 
then we're invited to find ways to live in to our belovedness. And for me, the best way to live in to our belovedness is to give it away and to recognize belovedness in other people, which is why I think I got into ministry and didn't become an advertiser. (laughs) Or maybe I did. (laughs) Amen.